You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. momentum of four years of inflation was stronger than had been anticipated. When we think of 1969, we think of Apollo, we think of Man on the Moon, we think of Age of Aquarius, we think of Woodstock. But to read media sources at the time, we should be thinking about something else. Inflation. It was the beginning of it. It was just a worry in 1969, coming off a booming economy, that prices might be going up. The pace of our progress toward price stability and high employment has not been quick enough. Pierce Time Magazine from March 1969. Inflationitis, a problem of psychology. Many businessmen are tied to spending plans formulated months ago. Last week, the Commerce Department reported that factory orders for durable goods, an important indicator of future economic activity, rose by $1 billion in February to a record level of $31 billion. Demand for money is likely to remain very high indeed. Businessmen expect to spend $73 billion, 14% more than last year, to expand their factories during 1969. I'm frankly disturbed by this evidence of how collective decisions of investors may help to keep inflation growing, says Treasury Secretary David Kennedy. Yes, growth is bad. The fight against inflation is everybody's business. If you act against the national interest, if you contribute to inflation in your price or wage demands, then you are acting against your own best interests and your customers' best interests. And that is neither good business nor good bargaining. If businessmen and working men are willing to raise their sights by lowering their demands, they will help themselves by helping to hold down everybody's cost of living. You have a booming 1960s, and you seem to take growth for granted, and then it's not just being taken granted, it's a problem. So inflationitis, that's the problem. Yet in certain areas, prices really were growing, and it really was a problem, and one of them was wood. Lumber grew 21% in price from November 1968 to March 1969. Time Magazine again. The U.S. faces no shortage of timber. National forests alone occupy an area twice the size of California. Yet lumber prices were up and that directly affected housing costs. The government did actually cut trees in national parks so they weren't all preserved. But as Time indicated, because of federal limitations on logging operations and also poor forest management techniques, the government's holdings yield only a quarter as much timber as as private timber operations do. 
Plus, a lack of access roads causes as much saw timber to be lost in storms and insect infestation as is harvested from national forests. And heavy opposition from conservationists makes any expansion of logging politically difficult. There was a bout of severe weather in the Pacific Northwest and in the East Coast along Shoreman Strike, which cut the supply from timber from, of timber from Canada. It's on the retail side in 1969 where lumber inflation is felt even more. The cost of plywood has risen by 77%. Douglas fir lumber, used mostly in housing, has doubled in price in many localities. Last week, the Commerce Department reported the new housing starts reached an annual rate of 1.7 million in February, well above last year's total of 1.5 million. George Romney, whose HUD secretary has a few things to blame. One is the rising cost of lumber. The other, Romney is a Republican, also Mitt Romney's father. As you know, if you've listened to our podcast about him, he'll also blame the Democrats, the previous administration, who failed to improve the log cutting in the national forests. Yes, one of the primary jobs of the National Forest Service this time is cutting trees. But they weren't doing a great job of it. Romney has a strict goal. This is the late 1960s. California is booming. There's a housing shortage in areas of the country. He wants 2.6 million residential construction units per year, as specified by the Housing Act of 1968. Standing in the way is the price of lumber. And there to slay this dragon is President Richard Nixon, newly inaugurated. Now, he wasn't about to don a lumberback a lumberjack flannel, and swing an axe at the industry. In fact, Kennedy had fought steel. Lyndon Johnson, as we're going to talk about, fought copper. Truman fought steel in a lot of other industries. Eisenhower had troubles, as we're going to get into. Richard Nixon didn't want to join this group of presidents just dictating prices to an industry and telling them to lower their prices. He'd try a different way out. Maybe he could simply buy his way out of this lumber crisis. He ordered the Interior and Agriculture Departments to step up the sale of lumber from publicly owned forests. Then he directed the Defense Department to limit its own purchases to just the essential requirements of what wood the military needed. The Department of Interior was directed to make available increased timber for sale. The Interstate Commerce Commission issued orders to relieve the shortage of boxcars used to move lumber and plywood from the Northwest. They also want to limit exports. The problem of inflation is Japan. Exports to Japan at this time are rising, 20-fold since 1960. And the Japanese bought enough lumber from the United States to erect 40% of the U.S. output of one-family homes. So Congress acts and sharply limits exports of lumber. Nixon brings this up in a televised speech. The Department of Agriculture was directed to use a supplemental appropriation for fiscal 1969 and increased appropriation for 1970 to provide additional timber from national forests. But Nixon was sensitive. It'll touch a lot of nerves, he told his advisors. And indeed it did. Newspapers called it a raid on the nation's forest. His own undersecretary of the interior said it was bad practice environmentally. But Nixon wanted this, and he wanted to do it in a two-prong plan. The one is that we would cut more limb. The second is that some of that money made from the sale of cutting more timber would be used 
to improve the output so that even more timber could be cut. In other words, improving those roads, funding more boxcars, funding more infrastructure and better equipment. It was crucial, George Romney said, to building the homes America needs. Environmentalists were livid. The reality they countered to all of this panic over lumber prices was not a shortage of lumber, but overall price inflation caused by speculation in timber based on new housing legislation. You've got Romney out there talking up the housing market. You've got ambitious goals. That's affecting the price of lumber. The the environmentalist group said the timber industry had a long history of timber fan timber famine rhetoric. They worried about the protections of the national parks. The acts creating and regulating the national parks protected just a small percentage of old growth forests. There was a good amount of de facto wilderness, undisturbed forest, yet forests that indeed were not part of the protection. They were vanishing at a rapid rate in 1969. On the other hand, Agriculture Secretary Earl Butts and Oregon Representative Wendell Wyatt, allies to the timber industry, said that the industry was in a crisis now and that the environment's ultimate ultimate aim, this is what Wyatt says, this is what Representative Wyatt says, is to stop cutting trees entirely. Court cases and congressional and media opposition delayed the Nixon's administration's expansion actions. Nixon was relying on a narrow definition of the Wilderness Act, which had been passed during Johnson's administration, creating a national wilderness preservation system. The act designated 9 million acres as part of this federal wilderness system. It classified areas as wild, wilderness, or canoeing areas. It provided for a 10-year review period for the executive branch to study possible additions and make recommendations to Congress. Included for study but not protected were 5.4 million areas of primitive areas not already reclassified. Okay, that's a lot of Washington speak, but here's what it means. On one hand, Nixon administration was saying, hey, this area, this 5.4 million, they're not protected. But environmentalists are saying, you designated it to study later. What are you going to study if it gets cut down? There was also opposition in Congress. Democratic Senator Edmund Muskie accused the administration of bypassing the National Environmental Policy Act. That was signed during Nixon's administration to great acclaim. Nixon liked to be considered an environmentally friendly president. You do know that his presidency will see the Clean Water Act passed. There's certainly a lot of praise that you could give to Nixon creating the uh, Environmental Protection Department, for instance, Protection Agency, for for instance. Muskie saying, but you're not even following your own environmental bill. This timber-cutting bill is directly in conflict with the National Environmental Policy Act. Sierra Club sues the Agriculture Department, arguing that harvesting of de facto wilderness violates NEPA. And the story of Nixon and Lumber is going to be that he gets bogged down between this court case, which um, will be settled, and also by the time he's able to restart additional plans, Watergate's dominating the news, non-Watergate things, John Ehrlichman said, would have to wait until Watergate was over. And Nixon resigns in 1974 in August. Ford will actually pick up the ball 
and keep trying to pursue this policy. The other thing that happens is they don't build all of those housing units that were planned. There's a slowdown in housing starts because of the price of timber and other things, which eventually brings relief in the price of lumber. Then lumber goes up again later, 1968 prices up, 70 slowdown, and 71 prices go up again. For President Johnson, the year before, the focus was on a different material, copper. But it's just as central and just as important. Prices were up, and it's what's needed in telephones and actually all electronic circuitry. And one of the players in the story is the Anaconda Company, which is very powerful in the copper market. It's a mining company based out of Montana. They held vast acreage of timberlands and mineral rights in Montana. They owned water. They owned electronic, electric utilities. Very powerful in Montana politics and very influential with the newspapers in Montana and even nationally. Copper prices go up from 1964 all the way to 1970. Anaconda made $99 million in profits on sales of $1.4 billion in copper. And that's in 1969 dollars. Anaconda is threatening another large price increase. So LBJ tasked Joseph Califano, his domestic aide, to get together with Defense Secretary McNair, other aides, and see what they can do about copper. As Califano tells the story, the aides are talking and saying, what can they do about the price of copper? You know, it's not like there's an agency that sets this price. And here's the other issue. None of the LBJ aides knew anything about this metal. And they feared setting a policy that might not match the reality of a market. So Califano calls Johnson, you know, says, look, this is this is the problem, uh, boss. We don't really know what the hell we're doing. Johnson thinks for a second and then says, There's this little man who worked on the staff of the Senate Preparedness Investigated Subcommittee. He knows more about copper than any living being. Joe something. Find him. Get him down here. Joe something, Joe Califano is thinking. That's all he's got to work on. Although it took a, quite an effort looking through various government directories and old committee reports of the Senate, Joe Califano actually is able to figure out from um, only a physical description that Johnson gave him of this little man that it was Joseph Zimmerman. And he was no longer a Senate staffer, didn't work for the government, now was a metals trader in New York. Califano has to work quick and tracks him down at his Connecticut guest house and flies this guy, Joe Zimmerman, down to Washington on the White House's jet star. Zimmerman can't believe this. <laughs> you know, he's being whisked same day from his Connecticut house to the cabinet room. And he gave everyone an education on copper markets. Copper, of course, is used in a lot of things. But there's unrest in copper-producing countries, and there's strikes in copper mines. U.S. companies don't want to raise prices, he said. In fact, they fear that if they do that, um, people might figure out substitutes like aluminum. But copper prices aren't set here. They're set on a world market, particularly Chile, one of the largest producers of copper. It's not even in the control of the United States. 
you're going to go to the copper companies like Anaconda are going to say, yeah, we really don't want, we're making money when prices go up, but we're just as scared long term about the replacement problem as you are about prices. So California sees this as hopeless. Foreign country, how are we going to get them to reduce prices? It's a world price, Mr. President. Well, find out what it will get to get Eduardo to lower prices. Eduardo Frey was president of Chile. And so uh, Linda Johnson recommends sending a top gun, former New York governor and veteran statesman Averill Harriman, to Chile. Califano says that might be stressful for a 74-year-old man to get on a plane like in very little notice. How can we get this guy to go? Johnson said, you tell him the president told him he wants him to do it. And one more thing. Send a car to his house. He's in Georgetown. Have the car there waiting right in front of his house. And one more thing. Yes, Califano says. He likes women. We'll put some pretty nurses on the plane. Zimmerman and Califano, meanwhile, produce a plan. This uh, metals trader is um, very aware of how markets work. Can you pull 200,000 tons of copper that the federal government has in its stockpile? And also, can you ask the New York Commodity Exchange to increase margin requirements on copper trading to stem speculation? And I just love this moment because Zimmerman is a metals trader, and probably it's not in his interest to reduce the, the market for copper or to work against his own exchange and their rules, and they obviously have margin spending to increase the amount of buying in the market. But for this day, he's been drafted and put in the service of the president, and he relishes it. This, this, this metals trader, the obscure person, door barges open when they're talking, and there's Lyndon Johnson. And he says, thank you, sir, for your service. All the observers in the room said this metal trader, Zimmerman, was in tears. And they sent him back. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. 
The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Harriman does go to Chile. I cannot tell you. I don't know whether there, the whole nurse thing happened or whatever. Um, it didn't go the exact next day, but he did get there, and there was some agreement reached. In March 1968, the price of copper had spiked up from... 45 cents in 1967 at the same time to 68 cents. Now, 68 cents is about $5 today. And the price of copper today per pound is about 416. It's also in a period of, uh, of increase. In fact, copper prices today are some of their highest. Uh, last time prices were this high were 2011. Then 2008, there was a, there was a run. 2006. But between March of 68 and about October of 1968, through Johnson's policies and other market factors, the price of copper goes from 68 back down to 46 cents. It does spike up again in the Nixon administration and um, will have some highs and lows. And by the time Nixon is, um, you're talking about Watergate, it will have spiked up to over a dollar. Um, so it's not, none of these solutions are permanent but did provide some relief during Johnson's presidency. He had been fighting. There was a copper strike early in 1968. He had to battle both parties. The story of copper and lumber, you know, are not in themselves important. But what it does say is that when inflation happens, suddenly presidents are thrust into markets. They're not always equipped to be in that place. It's not a normal place for government policy. But it's not without um, justifications uh, because there are, and did Johnson in the case of copper and resolving a copper strike early in 68 just said that, you know, shortage of copper is having a substantial impact on the economy and the balance of payments. And it has grave implications for a defense effort. He also claimed that since the strike spread across several states, it became a federal matter. So it's not hard for presidents to find a way to involve themselves. Yeah, we might think of uh, truck protests as something that's new when it just happened recently. We saw the incidents in Canada with uh, Justin Trudeau and the truck protesters, and then there was a truck protest threatened on Washington, D.C. came right before the uh, invasion of Ukraine and was sort of at least downplayed, if not outright canceled because of that. But it's not totally new, because back in 1994, here's from the New York Times, some truck drivers have taken out their frustration on the highways. There have been spontaneous slowdowns on the Ohio Turnpike since Tuesday, when a convoy of 18 wheelers slowed to 40 miles an hour on the highway just west of Youngstown. The reason was the proposal 
of a new gas tax. On Thursday night, before the tax took effect, 250 semi-tractor trailers heading west clotted traffic near Toledo when they drove single file in the right-hand lane at 55 miles an hour. The trucks that Highway Patrol officers could stop were given citations for impeding traffic. Sometimes when a truck was pulled over, the other truck drivers would stop too to give the trooper a piece of their mind. We don't condone these actions, said the vice president of the American Trucking Association, but we understand them. I'm mad, I'm mad, I'm mad, said Lula Curtis, a Philadelphia motorist as she paid for gasoline at the downtown Amico station. It's horrible, said Megos Tesfamarian, an Oakland cab driver filling up at a downtown BP station, where the price rose five cents to a dollar twenty-two today. We'll have to see how we survive. It's kind of a weird time now. Everything's going up. People don't have jobs. Don't use taxi. But it was the truck drivers who had the biggest protest. And so gas tax is pretty controversial, and you've seen the gas tax numbers become a source of debate. The interesting thing to know about gas taxes, though, is that there's a little bit more of a bipartisan history to it. I want to talk about gas prices and particularly about um, gas taxes because there's some gas tax politics going on. Now, one of the reasons you're hearing a lot of talk about gas taxes is the one thing that's actually at the whim of the president or Congress. It's not directly related to the world market. If you are if you have a tax on uh, gas, then presumably you can increase or lower that. Gas taxes have a, a somewhat long history. The first real one was 1919 to help pay for the war efforts, but um, it is in 1932 with a gas, federal gas tax that we know today, a penny per gallon, was instituted by President Herbert Hoover as a way to try to pay down the deficit, which they thought would help end the Depression. At least he did. There's, in the 1950s, as Eisenhower builds his federal highway system, he's looking for ways to fund it. And state governors, uh, including Republicans, they decide to increase the federal gas tax to three cents per gallon, but to create a new highway trust fund and reserve that fund for the use of the interstate system and highway projects. The money wasn't directly taken from the gas tax. This is something like the Social Security Trust Fund. Revenue goes into the general treasury and is spent, but is always credited to the fund so the fund is able to spend that money. The Federal Highway Act of 1956 is passed by Congress. President Eisenhower signs it, and the gas is now 3.5 cents a gallon. It's established at 4 cents during the Kennedy administration and remains 4 cents a gallon until the Surface Transportation Assistant Act of 1982. President Reagan approves it. This is his second year. Uh, if you remember the Reagan series, we talked about how 1981 was all about tax cutting, but 1982 was all about tax raising. But Reagan was looking for any way he could raise taxes without giving up his income tax cut. The signature achievement of his first term in his mind so that uh, they would come up with any kind of fees. This gas tax was one of them. The Surface Transportation Assistant Act increases the tax on a gallon of gas to nine cents. 
it gives eight cents to the highways, one cent to the mass transit account, a new transit fund. It's further increased in the Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act of 1990 under President George H.W. Bush, increasing the federal gas tax five cents. So increasing gas taxes over the years has been a kind of bipartisan and even a Republican. It's been executives and Congress members together. It's a tax that has, although it's not without its opposition, because there is so much spending on highways, it seemed to get through. In January 12th, 1982, President Reagan visits the Department of Transportation at 407th Street, Washington, and says, good tax policy is one which, as much as possible, the tax that funds a service is levied on those who benefit from the service. Our country's outstanding highway system was built on the user fee principle that those who benefit from a use should share in its cost. Bill Clinton passes another Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act of 1993 and increases the gas tax by 4.3 cents. This for deficit reduction and not being used for highways. The total is brought to 18.4 cents per gallon and it's where the gas tax remains today. Hope you've uh, liked something about this inflationary episode about presidents battling costs. And um, the website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. If you like the program, please tell someone about it.